Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. To mark the 50-year mass incarceration crisis in the United States, a new book, Beyond Bars, A Path Forward from 50 Years of Mass Incarceration in the United States, has been released, offering a compelling vision for criminal legal reform. The book delves deeply into the roots of the American criminal legal system as it meticulously examines one of the most critical issues of our time and presents practical solutions for a more just and equitable future. Beyond Bars, A Path Forward from 50 Years of Mass Incarceration in the United States is available now from Policy Press, an imprint of Bristol University Press. To discuss Beyond Bars, I'm joined by Ashley Nellis, Ph.D., and Kristen Budd, Ph.D. You know, actually, so that listeners can put names with voices, could I get you to introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is Kristen Budd. I'm a research analyst at The Sentencing Project, and I was one of the editors of the book. I'm Ashley Nellis, co-director of research at The Sentencing Project, and I wrote one of the book's chapters. Dr. Nellis, Dr. Budd, welcome. Thank you. Now, I'm familiar with The Sentencing Project. In fact, we had one of your colleagues, Liz Comar, on the show back in June. But for the benefit of newer listeners and as a reminder for longtime listeners, before we get to this new book, which is brilliant, by the way, could you tell us a little bit about The Sentencing Project? Sure. So we're a national nonprofit research-based advocacy organization, and we've been around since 1986, starting off as providing technical assistance to sentencing commissions around the time of sentencing guidelines being started, and uh, in the intervening decades, getting involved in federal and state advocacy and producing uh, research on the importance of sentence proportionality on crime. So let's get to this new book, Beyond Bars. Kristen, you wrote the, intro- the editorial introduction, which starts with a passage from my very favorite 18th century Italian philosopher, Cesare Baccaria, quote, it is better to prevent crimes than to punish them. This is the fundamental principle of good legislation, which is the art of conducting men to the maximum of happiness and to the minimum of misery, if we may apply this mathematical expression to the good and evil of life, end quote. It's beautiful. That's not actually part of a question. He really is one of my favorite philosophers. Now for the questions, let's start with the most basic. How did Beyond Bars come together and why? Sure. This year, the Sentencing Project has embarked on what we have been calling, you know, the 50-year campaign. So part of our mission here at the Sentencing Project is to educate the public on mass incarceration when it began and how we've seen this build up over these years since 1973. So we've seen a 500% increase um, in the number of those who are incarcerated in the United States. So as part of this campaign to shine light on this social problem, right, that's been going for five decades. We've partnered with the Society for the Study of Social Problems, and then we decided to launch an edited book project. It is a rapid response book in partnership with Policy Press, so it's quick production. So we sent out out a call for papers 
to experts in the field to contribute to this volume to shine a light on different social problems that stem from mass incarceration. So you have lots of topics in this book from life imprisonment to fines and fees, education, uh, the ramifications on children who have incarcerated parents. So it spans lots of topics. Ashley, you wrote the first chapter of Beyond Bars. The title of your chapter is Mass Incarceration's Lifetime Guarantee. Now, that first sentence is startling. That is an excellent lead. Quote, the year 2023 marks 50 years since the era of mass incarceration began, and there are now more people serving life sentences alone than the entire prison population at its start. End quote. I mean, it's just, talk to me about this. Sure. So, um, you know, my work really focuses on the lengthening of prison sentences that has occurred over the course of mass incarceration and how um, in addition to adding more and more people to the prisons, we have extended sentences and closed off the possibility of them getting out um, in any reasonable period of time for you know public safety benefit. So um, you know we now have one in seven people in prison serving a life sentence, fifty-five thousand people serving life without the possibility of parole, and in some states as many as thirty percent of the prison population has a life sentence. So it's an unsustainable uh, practice. It's not something that, um, you know, is recommended by the science. And I don't even know that it would be uh, something that is recognizable from uh, what the policymakers uh, narrative was at the time that mass incarceration started. How's the book structured? So the book is structured in three different sections. So the first section is what is the problem? So the problem could be life imprisonment. It could be housing instability, employment, education. So the contributors, the experts in the field will introduce you to that problem that stems from mass incarceration. The second section of the each chapter is the evidence. So how do we know this, right? So some of that evidence obviously comes from the sentencing project, um, but then also academic research, research from other nonprofits. So they're going to tell the reader, this is how we know this is a problem, how many people it is affecting, so on and so forth. And then the bulk of each chapter, which is what makes this book unique, is the solutions section. So that is the bulk of the chapter where you have all of these different proposed solutions to each one of these social problems that stem from the from mass incarceration. I think that the biggest takeaway that it's especially with the way the book is designed is that prison is not an experience that you just have and then you're done with it and you move on with your life. It has, you know, an impact on your life, your family's life and your entire trajectory. And so while it's, you know, it may be necessary for a short time for some people, the way that we've gone about it, which is to incarcerate almost 2 million people, is borderline, uh, if not completely cruel and inhumane, uh, because it's it's unnecessary to have uh, such a um, severe sentence um, and severe response to criminal behavior um, where you're going to wreck the rest of the person's life. I think, you know, just in general, um, housing is one of the way, one of the um, collateral consequences of having a criminal record, even if you aren't incarcerated, that makes it very difficult to get back on your feet, right? And so somebody who has um, any kind of record is often flagged right away. 
And even if they don't have to reveal it on application, uh, because of the internet, you can often find somebody who has a record and then just um, use that against them, whether it's accurate or not. And, you know, there's also certain bans at the federal level. There has been a long time ban on people with serious drug crime convictions at the federal level, not being able to receive federal benefits for housing, not only them, but if anyone else in their family um, or, or an acquaintance has a federal conviction for uh, drug crime, they can be removed from federal ha- from uh, government housing. So the system doesn't really work to support people on reentry. It really works against people and um, it makes it more difficult to reenter and to lead, you know, a crime free life on the um, on the outside of having a conviction. Could you talk for a moment about felony disenfranchisement? Depending on which state you live. So I almost equate it to a state lottery. Your voting rights could be impacted if you are convicted of a felony. So certain states, you're only prohibited from voting while you're incarcerated. You have another set of states where if you're on um, felony probation or parole, you cannot vote. You have another set of states, this keeps going, where if you have fines, fees, court costs, child support, you know, all of those different things, it could also prevent you from voting until you clear those fines and court costs. So essentially what we have now is a vast swath of individuals across the United States due to mass incarceration who have lost their voice in the democratic process. So they don't have, and these are people who are working, they're caregivers, they may have children, they're community leaders, yet they can't vote on the things that are going to directly impact their communities, their states, and then also, right, um, our, our government as it functions here in the United States. So there's very few states and territories where you can vote. So you have Maine, Vermont, Puerto Rico, and then also Washington, D.C. So if you're incarcerated there with a felony, you can vote. But every other state, the laws drastically differ. Um, And then you have individuals who, you know, for example, like Florida, very hard to figure out whether or not you've paid your fines and fees. So even if you legally can vote, you may not be able to have access to that information to say, yes, everything has been paid. I can now go legally vote. Um, So you have the other side of disenfranchisement in that way where folks do have this, you know, criminal conviction that at one point prevented them from voting. And even though they legally can vote, there's not enough information for them to access. And that's a high risk, right? Um, That could potentially intersect your life with the law once again. You mentioned the you mentioned legal debts. Now you do, there's a chapter in here mm-hmm. on monetary sanctions. You as, as it referred to legal financial obligations or LFOs of the fines, fees, church. Could you talk? Could you talk about those for a moment? Well, if they are currently incarcerated, I would hypothesize they probably do not have the ability to pay these. So they're might be reliance on you know friends or family members to help with those bills, but. Even though these chapters present topics separately, they're all interwoven, right? So when you look at those who are potentially earning a wage in prison, those wages are, you know, just abysmal or no wages, right? You are essentially, you know, working for free. And then when you come out of a state of incarceration, now you have what has been termed the mark of the criminal record, right? So 
you're attempting to find employment and in some states, right, they do have things like ban the box where, but it makes it more difficult to find a job with a living wage. Then you have obstacles in housing. So how expensive is housing going to be for you if you can find stable housing? So see how the problems are all interconnected. So the ability to be able to pay off these fines and fees becomes much more complicated because now you have to be able to find the job to pay for everyday needs. You have to find housing, which is hopefully stable housing for that individual um, on top of everything else with the criminal justice system. Because these don't go away just because this, the, uh, the actual incarceration sentence comes to an end and that's... Correct. And and for individuals who are coming out on, you know, probation or parole, depending on, you know, the state and so on and so forth, they may also have to pay for GPS monitoring, drug testing, polygraphs, right? So they could have additional expenses, treatment, right? Um, they may also have to pay for that, that are adding up as they're also trying to find employment and housing and things of that nature. Um, so these legal debts, so to speak, they add on top of each other along with trying to, to re-enter and to re-enter into right, a pro-social environment. Research tells us having a job, having pro-social networks, having a stable place to live, these are all the things that can help folks reintegrate successfully so you stop the quote-unquote revolving door. Now, you also have this chapter toward the end, the impact of mass incarceration on children of incarcerated parents. Can you talk a little bit about that? Children of incarcerated parents, it also creates great instability for those children, right? So not only are you dealing with obstacles of keeping those ties between parent and child, depending on where that parent is incarcerated, it could be a very long journey, right? So now you're having to rely on is there transportation, right, to, and is there an, another adult, right, if the child is a minor, you know, to take them to visit their incarcerated parents. So maintaining those bonds while incarcerated can be exceptionally hard for individuals. And then it also does cause instability for that child, particularly if that parent who is incarcerated is the primary caregiver, right? So now who will that child live with? Will that living arrangement be a stable living arrangement? So it definitely tips a domino, if that makes sense, on the ramifications for that child or children. We'll return in a moment to our conversation with Ashley Nellis, Ph.D., co-director of research at The Sentencing Project, and Kristen Budd, Ph.D., research analyst at The Sentencing Project. We're discussing the book newly released by Policy Press entitled Beyond Bars, A Path Forward from 50 Years of Mass Incarceration in the United States. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Now let's get back to that conversation. Dr. Nellis unfortunately had to leave the call early, but Dr. Budd was able to stay on. One of your chapters talks about the promise of higher education in prison and beyond, and that's a, uh, it's, would it be fair to call it a broken promise? I think that would be very fair because you're looking at limited resources, right, available to those who are incarcerated. Do the, you know, Department of Corrections that they are housed in have enough of those programs, right? So you could be looking at limited capacity. Are these institutions partnering with um, higher education in some form, right, to have some type of maybe an inside out program where they can get 
educational access, then you also have the cost, right? So we now know that Pell Grants were just reinstituted through the federal government. I believe those went live July 1st of 2023. So now individuals who qualify can apply for financial aid so they can then take said classes because they can, you know, they have assistance to pay for those. But one other seed I would like to plant is, you know, how do you go about getting that education? Does the Department of Corrections offer you a tablet or a computer, right? Um, access to the books you'll need. Do you, can you afford those? So once again, it's a multi-layered process slash issue, right? Between resources, Department of Correction rules, and then also the availability and the number of people. So is your program already oversaturated and you might not be able to get into those educational opportunities? Well, and you mentioned a tablet, that's fine. It, it but it's not like it's not like prisons have free Wi Fi. They had prison policy initiative folks on talking about some of the outrageous charges and fees for uh, for accessing the internet and for just for making phone calls and the like. It can be very expensive. Um, and then especially when you bring in inflation, right? There's been pieces out there talking about the prices in commissaries are exceptionally expensive, even from what we're paying here, like when you go out to the grocery store or whatnot. Um, so there's also that additional layer. Now, one of the chapters, um, mass incarceration and the collateral problems of parole. We focus a lot about, we focus a lot on incarceration being inside of prisons and jails and so the 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 argument goes well we'll just expand parole and expand probation but um that's 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 not that's not really a solution is it or is it well the our probation population is very large um when it comes to parole we call that a, a back-end release valve, so to speak, right? Because it's a process to which you can apply. And typically, right, you go in front of a parole board. I don't want to get too much into the weeds. And, you know, then there's a decision made of whether or not you're eligible to be released from incarceration or not. So when you look at the chapter written by Kim Richmond on the collateral <laughs> problems of parole, um, she does a really wonderful job, you know, talking about how individuals are being essentially trained to speak in certain ways, right, to show remorse and so on and so on. Uh, and that in itself can be, you know, problematic, maybe down the road. So she does, she calls it parole speak. I can't recall if she termed that if it was from another scholar, but it's a really nicely written chapter that looks at those issues with parole and, you know, what we call as social scientists, like the front stage performance of parole. Um, for us at the Sentencing Project, our recommendation is to cap all sentences at 20 years with very, very limited exceptions to to that recommendation. So if we did that, right, so reflecting on Ashley giving us the numbers about, you know, individuals who are serving life without parole, think of the budget you would have to reinvest 
in communities, right? Different types of community strategies to prevent crime. Um, so intervention strategies, building green spaces, providing youth with jobs, right? All of these different avenues that reinvesting in communities that have been disinvested in, right? So you would have a pocket full of money to do that. Then you would also have a pocket full of money to really build out these rehabilitative programs within the prison systems themselves, right? So there wouldn't be an extended wait to get into treatment. There wouldn't be an extended wait to get into different types of therapy that you know, would be good for this individual. There wouldn't be a wait to get educational resources. So we need to shift the focus, right? We're spending billions of dollars on this very large system that is affecting so many different areas of the nation, some more than others, but also we know it's disproportionately affecting communities of color, particularly Black men. If we would reinvest, we would build community safety in a different way versus just relying on punishment. And that's what the U.S. has done. We have heavily focused on sanctioning. And over the past 50 years, these sentences are getting longer and longer and longer. And what happens is that we don't necessarily recognize the opportunity to change the humanity of individuals that you know, have learned over the 5, 10, 15, 20 years that they have been incarcerated, they've had growth, they have this potential. And just to tap one more time back on parole boards, right, they're often looking at criminal history, right? What is this charge? And, you know, that can be one of those weighted factors on determining whether or not someone gets out on parole. But as someone who did this act, per se, let's say when they were 20, the same person when they're 50, right? So we have to build in that capacity for change. Okay, so the Sentencing Project literally today on August 3rd, 2023, just released a brand new report. It's called Safety Beyond Sentencing. So another one of the reports that is linked to our 50-year campaign, and it focuses on five social interventions. So I would highly encourage your listeners to pull this up and read it. So one of them is implementing community-based safety solutions. So that would be things like I had touched on. So violence interruption programs, also things like social environments, so building out green spaces, cleaning up those vacant lots, street lighting, so on and so forth. But part of violence interruption too is to once again, build those community social bonds, you know, detect and interrupt those conflicts, and then also change social norms, right? Which is an important component. So looking at, you know, changing how we respond to crisis. So if people are having a mental health crisis that, Policing may not be or is not, right, the most appropriate response. So looking at what might be considered like an, quote unquote, interdisciplinary team. So maybe it's law enforcement, but also a social worker, someone from public health, right? So you have different types of expertise there. So it does not escalate. But also maybe it is 
you know, some type of city using specifically social workers and things of that nature, mental health care um, providers to respond to those calls. Okay. So a different type of, of tactic versus using law enforcement. So community-based responders, right? So those who have that expertise. Um, another one is reducing unnecessary justice involvement. Um, so things like decriminalizing certain non-public safety offenses. So think about things like loitering that bring you into contact with the criminal justice system. Um, and then also diversion programs, right? So not sending everyone to that state of incarceration, just using diversion programs can be quite successful to improve community safety. We also advocate in this research brief to end the drug war, right? So treating it as a public health issue um, versus using, once again, punitive measures, sentencing, sanctioning, um, to think that that will address, right? Um, substance abuse, addiction, and things of that nature. And then also strengthening those opportunities for youth. So that's something I mentioned before is really having those employment opportunities, particularly right during the summer when school's out, um, could be a really meaningful way, right, to prevent um, criminal legal involvement is expanding opportunities for our youth. What question have I not yet asked that I should have? I mean, the one thing we would like your listeners to know that this book is free. It's open access. They can, we are currently creating a webpage. So they'll be able to download a free PDF of the book from the sentencingproject.org. Um, so that will be coming very soon. They can also go to Policy Press's website. So they have a website dedicated to this book and they can download specific chapters that are of interest to them. So if they're interested in felony convictions and voting, they can download that chapter. If they're interested in the ramifications on children, they can download that chapter. So if you don't want the literal whole book, there is a way just to get those um, chapter components that folks can read. And the one other thing I wanted to mention about this book, because it is solutions oriented, our goal is to always have actionable, practical solutions that can be implemented now, right? So these solutions can be for our community members. They can be actions we ourselves can take as, you know, citizens of the United States. Um, there's, you know, solutions aimed at you know, those who are representing us in government. So there's community solutions, lots of solutions. Um, so I do encourage folks to read those because we do get a lot of questions like, what can I do now, right? In my own community, as a community member to, you know, help address mass incarceration. So this book does a wonderful job of, of giving solutions from me as the individual all the way up to what, you know, we can propose to those who are making the laws. So remind people of your your website, the, the URL, also um, how do people find and support the work you're doing on social media, that kind of thing. Yep. So we're at the sentencingproject.org. So that's how you can find us online. We also have other social media presence. So you can follow us on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We're on Twitter. So if you're on those platforms, we encourage you to follow us and you'll get all the new up-to-date research and briefs that we send out. Um, you'll also get information on the different campaigns we're doing. So whether it's for voting rights, ending extreme sentencing, addressing racial disparity within the system. So it's a really good resource. 
if they sign up on our website, you can select certain areas of interest. So if you only want things about voting rights, you can sign up for that. So you can definitely tailor your your experience um, depending on what you would like to learn about. Any closing thoughts for the listener? Well, first and foremost, I would love everyone to go out and fight for social justice so we can end mass incarceration. 50 years is long enough. I don't want, and we don't want at the Sentencing Project, nor at the Society for the Study of Social Problems, another 50 years of mass incarceration. We need to look beyond extreme sentencing to promote and build better communities and community safety. That was my conversation with Ashley Nellis, Ph.D., co-director of research at The Sentencing Project, and Kristen Budd, Ph.D., research analyst at The Sentencing Project. We were discussing the new book from The Sentencing Project, published by Policy Press, entitled Beyond Bars, A Path Forward from 50 Years of Mass Incarceration in the United States. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Many thanks to my guests, Dr. Ashley Nellis and Dr. Kristen Budd. Thanks also to The Sentencing Project, and thanks especially to you, dear listener. You make it all worth it, and you make it all possible. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long!